Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pause before we consider the revelation that you have given through, in this case, the Apostle Paul. We're so thankful that every human experience that we could ever go through, you touch upon in this book in some fashion. That through the ages, the great principles of truth are given to us in clear format. Lord, as we consider what is part of the marriage process, and that is the bearing and the raising and directing of children, I pray, Father, that you'd give us great grace. Some of us as parents, uh, would-be parents or grandparents even, these principles, Father, extend to all. Help us to understand, to apprehend, and to put into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. How many of you are parents? Show of hands. Great. How many of you have had parents? Raise your hands. Okay, well, just wanted to make sure we cover all our bases. I want to talk to you today about the world's most important job. I think of all the tasks we could ever be assigned, all the occupations we could ever be engaged in, that especially in marriage, the most important is that of being a parent. My mind goes back to May 8, 1986, when my son Nathan Alexander was born. And I remember after he, he was washed up and they gave him to me to hold, the first thing that entered my mind is, he's so light. Just this little peanut I'm holding, and he's just so little and so manageable, so light. And as I was thinking that, another thought hit me like a ton of bricks, and that is the weight of responsibility for this life as it goes beyond the event of birth all the way through his years to adulthood. It is estimated that 16% of a child's life is spent at school. 1% of a child's life occupies the Sunday school, that is if he or she goes, which means 83% of that child's life will be spent under the tutelage of parents. Psalm 127 says, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. I remember meditating on that psalm because we wanted more than one child. We wanted several. But I thought, really? Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them? Not every man would agree that they want a quiver full of children. They quiver at the thought of having a quiver full of children. There were three men in a hospital waiting room while their wives were in the delivery room uh, giving them their respective children. A nurse came in and said to one of the fathers, congratulations, your wife just bore you twins. He smiled and said, what a coincidence because I happen to play for the Minnesota Twins. And so she thought, okay, cool. Came back a little bit later and 
announced to the second husband, congratulations, your wife just had triplets. And this guy said, this is amazing because I work for the 3M company. Isn't that wild that I would have three children triplets when I work for the 3M company? Well, upon hearing this conversation, the third guy just hit the floor and started moaning. And the nurse said, are you sick? And he said, no, ma'am, but I do work for the 7-Up company. (laughs) The thought that somehow that could be prophetic bothered him. Being a parent is, aside from having a spouse, the most important job in the world. But it's also the toughest job. And, And here's why it's tough. By the time you're experienced you're out of a job. You're unemployed. Just when you're getting the hang of it and it's all coming together for you and you're firing on all cylinders, they leave the house. It's a tough job because kids have a mind and that means they're unpredictable. You never know what they might say or what they might do. And I'm talking to a group of people that have various uh, stages in life. Some of you have already raised your kids. You're into the grandparent stage. And can I just say once again, that's the best part. But some of you aren't there yet. You're still raising kids. And uh, you're even at that awkward phase. Some call it the rebel force. Teenage years. And you're just sort of managing through that, holding your breath. You know what Mark Twain once said? He said, things go pretty smoothly until your child reaches age 13. That's the time to stick them in a barrel, put the lid down nice and tight, and feed them through a knot hole. (laughs) Then, he said, when they turn 16, close up the knot hole. (laughs) As much as I love Mark Twain, he was a great humorist and a wonderful author, I don't think he knew very much about raising kids. Because first of all, things don't go pretty smoothly up till age 13. And then the whole not whole thing, you think you're going to feed a teenage boy who can eat three refrigerators full of food through a not hole? You're crazy. The whole point of being a parent isn't to be disengaged, isn't to check out by putting them in a barrel or whatever but rather to let them check you out. That's the whole idea of this scenario of parenting. You're letting young lives check you out, what you say, what you do, and you're shaping and molding a life for the future. And Can I just say, it's much easier to build a boy than it is to repair a man. It's much easier to build a girl than it is to repair a woman. But how do you do that? How do you build? How do you fashion? How do you use those formidable years to give sufficient, necessary resource for that person to launch into the future? Well, I've had you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, which is, of course, following chapter 5, which talks all about husbands and wives. Husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husband. In chapter 5, a good section of that deals already with the marriage issue. We continue in chapter 6, and though we're going to look at one verse, for the sake of context, let's begin in chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord." 
We're going to occupy our time this morning on that single verse, verse 4. There's enough in one verse to give us a good overall snapshot of the role of parenting in a marriage relationship. And you'll notice it's a commandment. It's a negative and a positive command. So the verse divides nicely into three general principles for parenting. Number one, parenting can be done negatively. It's done all the time negatively. It could be done positively. And finally, parenting should be done ultimately. So we're just going to take phrase by phrase and work our way through this one verse. Sometimes less is more as we probe the depths of it. So parenting can be done negatively. You'll notice the first part of verse 4. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Stop there. Why does Paul direct this toward fathers only? Why doesn't he say, for example, fathers and mothers or parents? Why just fathers? Because if you know anything at all about parenting, you couldn't keep a mom away from the parenting situation to save your life, right? I mean, she's like the bulk of it. I was in a hospital visiting a couple some time back. Their child was brought into the emergency room with some respiratory difficulty, I believe, if memory serves. And uh, both of them were concerned, mom and dad. But the mother, she like owned the hospital. She was in total control of the welfare of that child. You know, anybody that would come close, just those that look. So then why does Paul say, fathers... Don't provoke your children to wrath. I'm going to give you three possible answers. They all may be correct, though I think the third one is most correct. Number one, because if there is an area of neglect, typically for a man, it would be that of his children. Typically, fathers tend to neglect children. It's not high on their priority list. Especially when this was written 2,000 years ago in the Roman world, To most dads 2,000 years ago, kids were an inconvenience. They simply did it to satisfy the requirements of the state, of the government. They did it as their civic duty, but they didn't spend much time raising kids. So because it was an area of neglect, perhaps Paul isolates the fathers, the Christian fathers who would be reading this letter. In fact, even Socrates years ago, of course, in, in the Greek times... Uh, said to the men of Athens, Why do you men scrape and turn every stone to gather wealth, but neglect your own children, to whom you must one day relinquish all? So it must have been quite a problem. Here's the second reason that Paul speaks to fathers only in this verse. Because fathers tend to be, of the father and mother, the ones that are at least perceived to be the most harsh of the two. When you think of tender care, you usually think about a mother. Uh, Fathers are a little more on the disciplinarian side. I mean, I'm just remembering my dad. He was tall, had a big voice, and kind of that imposing, intimidating figure as compared to my five-foot, one-inch mother. Here's a third reason, and probably the reason. 
Though Paul would have known that parenting involves, of course, father and mother, he's speaking to fathers principally because they bear the brunt of responsibility in the home. In other words, I'm dealing with you dads because I know the buck stops here and you are responsible for setting the pace and the tone even of child rearing in the home. So though he would have in his mind mothers and fathers, he primarily addresses dads. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. So you can see by that negative commandment in verse 4 that parenting can be done negatively because he says, don't do it this way, but do do it this way. Parenting can be done negatively and can be actually detrimental to a child. One translation of the New Testament renders it, fathers, don't exasperate your children by coming down hard on them. The Amplified Bible is even more colorful, and I wonder if children didn't have a hand in translating this verse. Fathers, do not provoke or irritate or fret your children. Do not be hard on them or harass them, lest they become discouraged and sullen and morose and feel inferior and frustrated. Do not break their spirit. That's the translation of that one negative command. It's put in the present tense, this negative command. Do not provoke. And because it's in the present tense, it suggests a pattern that over time resentment and frustration could build up by that process in the heart of a child. You say, how? What ways would possibly be provoking to a child? Let me give you several. Number one, hypocrisy will provoke a child to wrath. When a child hears what parents say and they watch what parents do and those don't match, boy, they can preach a good message there, but at home, this is what they're really like. That builds up resentment. That angers a child. They feel like you've betrayed them. John Bunyan said, A man can be a saint abroad, but a devil at home. And if such is the case, that will provoke a child to wrath. A second way is by inconsistency. Inconsistency. And I'm speaking here of discipline. When a parent is inconsistent in the way he or she deals with the little ones, that provokes them to wrath. If you respond one way to them one day, but then the next day respond a totally different way to the same kind of action, it confuses them. So, for example, if yesterday was Junior's birthday and he threw a cake across the room and hit Aunt Matilda and you laughed it off, but the next day he accidentally spills milk and you go ballistic, that sends a confusing message. You are not consistent in the way you are approaching his behavior. Also, if one parent is harsh and the other is passive, that's inconsistent. And you know what that means? It means that the child is going to find that out really quickly and figure out who to go to to get his or her will done. Oh, mom's hard, but dad's soft. Forget mom, I'm going right to dad. So that's why parents have to talk it through and decide together how their discipline is going to be consistent. Two Harvard sociologists said the number one factor in preventing delinquency in children is the firm, fair, and consistent discipline of parents. Did you get that? Firm, fair, 
and consistent. So hypocrisy and inconsistency will provoke a child to wrath. Here's a third, discouragement. If you criticize more than compliment a child, if a child grows up knowing all the things he does wrong versus some of the things he does right, that'll build resentment, wrath, anger. Proverbs 15, harsh words stir up anger. When a child feels like they can't do anything right, they will get angry. You are provoking them to wrath. Here's a fourth. Favoritism. If a parent plays favorites with one child over another, and that was easy in my case. I had one son. But when you have many children, and I was the fourth born of four boys. I had three older brothers. And I remember what this was like. Have you ever been compared to your siblings? Remember that growing up? And uh, my older brothers, by the way, they were like overachievers. Valedictorian, varsity this, varsity that. Just like hard to compete. And I heard that. And it would build up resentment over time. Favoritism. Can you think of a couple of scriptural examples of a father or mother who did this, played favorites, and what the fallout was? My mind goes to Isaac and Rebekah. Remember that married couple in Genesis 25? And Isaac's favorite son was his firstborn Esau, whereas Rebekah's favorite son was the secondborn Jacob. And that was a recipe for a family feud. Another one was Joseph. He was the favorite of his father, and all the other brothers saw that, heard that, felt that. And over time, they grew bitter against Joseph and sold him into slavery. So hypocrisy, inconsistency, discouragement, favoritism. Here's a fifth. Overcommitment. Kids study us, and if they see us being overcommitted so that our job, our occupation, our activities, our hobbies take precedent over them so that they feel like they're an intrusion into your life whenever they try to get your attention, you'll provoke them to wrath. They feel unwanted. Now, kids will understand if you're busy, but they won't understand if they're neglected. Charles Francis Adams, that probably doesn't ring a bell. He was a politician in our country in the 1800s. Charles Francis Adams. You probably do know his grandfather, or you know of him, President John Adams was his grandfather. And you know his father, John Quincy Adams. So when grandpa and dad are presidents of the United States, that's a hard act to follow. Well, he became a politician. He wasn't a president. He was a diplomat, a statesman, involved in uh, several different kind of campaigns. Very, very, very overcommitted. So much so that on one particular day, when he went fishing with his son, Henry, Both of them kept diaries. In little Henry's diary, the entry said, went fishing with my dad today, the most wonderful day of my life. But in dad's diary, it read, went fishing with my boy today, a day wasted. You got to know that Henry grew up feeling that overcommitment of his father to politics and to business so that he felt like an intrusion. That'll provoke a child to wrath. Let me give you a sixth. 
domineering. Domineering parents, either by controlling them, the kids, or smothering the kids, or overprotecting the kids. When a child feels like you are just like hovering and you won't let them out, you won't let them make their own choices, they feel like, well, you don't trust them. You don't trust them to make their own choices or to feel the consequences of their own choices. And that will build up over time resentment. They will grow to be angry. You provoke them to wrath. Another way, this is way number seven, not to parent. Minimizing what your kids feel or say or what opinion they have. If they share something, they share an idea or an opinion and you just marginalize it, minimize it. It builds up resentment in them. If uh, her doll breaks or his toy is missing and you go, Oh, come on, it's just a toy. Without realizing that toy to that child is like your car or your occupation, your business. It's everything to him. If you minimize those kind of feelings and opinions over time, it builds up resentment. I read a report on child welfare it stated the primary reason why kids go to foster homes is not because of the divorce of parents, not because of financial issues, but disinterested parents. They just lose an interest in the kids. Finally, here's the eighth way not to parent. Overloading. I don't mean your life, I mean their life. If your expectations of those girls or boys are so high so that you don't give them approval until they reach a certain goal, a certain grade, a certain cheerleader status or athletic status. You're provoking them to wrath. They feel like they will never please you. They'll grow up frustrated. Why does he have to get the best grades? Why does he have to be number one on the team? Why? Did you know that Napoleon Bonaparte was number 42 in his class? He became a ruler of a nation. Did you also know that Isaac Newton was next to the lowest in his class? Wow, great scientist. Or what about the six-year-old kid that came home from school with a note by the teacher that said, too stupid to learn? That was Thomas Edison. Too stupid to learn what? Great American inventor. So, parenting can be done negatively. Fathers, including all parents, both parents, mom and dad, do not provoke your children to wrath. Now we turn a corner. The second phrase of verse 4. But, there's the positive. Bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. The word bring up means to nourish your children, or, or better yet, move them toward maturity. Bring them up. Don't hold them down. Don't push them back. Don't keep them home. Bring them up. How are we to bring them up? Notice two words are given right after that. Bring them up. What's the first? In the training. Training. Teaching. I've read something this week that it was sort of an astonishing revelation. The word for parents, plural, in Hebrew is the word horim. 
It's related to the word in Hebrew that I already knew, more. That word means teacher. So parents and teacher come from the same root word. And here's the reason why. In Judaism, parents were the first teachers. And I I don't mean that figuratively. I mean literally. The first three years of a Hebrew boy or girl's life, the mother was in charge of the educational process until that child was weaned. Once the child was weaned, if it was a boy, the father would supervise the teaching of the law to the male child and give that boy a trade to follow throughout life. If it was a girl, the mother would disciple that young daughter in the domestic affairs and activities of the home. So parents were the first trainers, teachers. Why why is that? Because they believed literally in the command of Deuteronomy 6. Let me read it to you. The words which I, the Lord, command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, moms and dads, the training of your children should be as natural as the activities of your day, a part of everyday life. When I was first reading this series of texts in Deuteronomy as a young father, wondering how I could implement that, knowing that my son loved to play dress-up all the time, anytime there was a new figure, a new movie, he'd become that character, uh, we invented a little game at home called Say, Play, and Pray. I've told you about this over the years. But it was something he looked forward to like every day. Say, play, pray. We would say it first. We would play it second. We would pray about it third. First of all, we would say it. We would read in a simplified version of the Bible a story out of the Bible. Say David and Goliath. After we would say it or read it, we would then play it. We would role play it. We would act it out. I would be Goliath. He would be... He was always the hero. If it was a New Testament, he was always Jesus. And we would actually dress up in clothing of the time and put on our own little play. So we would say it, reinforce it by playing it. Then afterwards, we would pray about the lesson that that story taught us. So every time I came home, Nate would say, let's do say, play, and pray. Never got tired of it. There's lots of creative ways to train them. So, parenting can be done negatively. It could be done positively. And Paul says, you're to bring them up, move them toward maturity by first being their teacher, their trainer. But notice the second word. The training and the admonition of the Lord. Now, there's a Bible word, right? Admonition. What does that mean exactly? I'm going to tell you the word in Greek because some of you who have a counseling background or you've been trained in counselors will recognize the word. Nuthesia. Nuthesia is the word. If you have a counseling background, you may know that nuthetic counseling, espoused by Dr. J. Adams especially, comes from this word admonition or nuthesia. It actually means to place something before one's mind. And it has the idea of correcting rebuking or warning by even contending with a person like saying, now wait a minute, I want to correct your path, change your behavior, warn you to stay away from this and instruct you in a different way. So it's a little firmer idea. There's training, but then there's admonition. Proverbs 29 says, a child left to himself brings 
shame. Admonition brings up the subject of discipline. A word some parents try to avoid, a practice many parents try to avoid. Discipline. And there's two kinds of discipline. There's corrective discipline, that's corporal punishment. And there's preventative discipline. Let me just make a few remarks and base them on the scripture. Number one, corrective discipline, that means spanking. Corrective discipline expresses love. Corrective discipline expresses, demonstrates love. Now, not everybody agrees. Some think it's the most hateful thing in the world. You know who thinks that mostly? Kids. (laughs) You don't love me. No, it's because I love you I'm going to do this. You hate me. Or, I hate you. So a parent thinks, they just said they hate me. That seven-year-old must hate me. I better not do it. What your seven-year-old thinks about you today really is unimportant. What your 18-year-old will think about you after the process is over is all important. It's loving. It's not hateful. It's loving. In fact, listen to what God says, Hebrews The book of Hebrews, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges every son he receives. Corrective discipline expresses love. Also, corrective discipline is fruitful. It bears fruit. It produces fruit. When it's done rightly, righteously, and fairly, it produces fruit. Listen to Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14. This is right out of the New Living Translation. I selected it on purpose. Don't fail to correct your children. They won't die if you spank them. Physical discipline may well save them from death. It's fruitful when administered righteously. Ever since... uh, my era of being raised, there were anti-spanking experts, all the way from Dr. Spock, not from Star Trek, a different one, (laughs) all the way through to modern times. And spanking was decried, corporal punishment was decried as being wrong and unproductive, and it will cause your kids to be antisocial, so said all the experts, and so say some of these experts. I read an interesting article in U.S. News and World Report that say that such experts base all of their findings, quote, on a body of research that is at best inconclusive and at worst badly flawed. The same article that dealt with this cites more recent studies indicating that spanking will make children less likely to fight with others and more likely to obey their parents. Something else about corrective discipline. It must be timely. You can't start when they're 17. You can't say, okay, they're 13, find a barrel. It has to be timely. Proverbs 19, verse 18, chasten your son while there's hope. And don't be a willing party to his death. You do not show love by overlooking willing disobedience and neglecting discipline. I heard about two kids that were growing up and they said, do your parents ever spank you? And they said, do my parents ever spank me? My mom has a little whip down by her kitchen sink with a, 
words of the hymn next to it. I need thee every hour. Let me give you one final point about corrective discipline. Corrective discipline requires tools. And what is the most frequent tool the book of Proverbs talks about when it comes to discipline? The rod, right? The rod. Now, some of your your eyes are widening right now. The word in Hebrew for rod is the Hebrew word shebet, which means a staff, a branch, or an offshoot. In other words, something that is separate from the human body. Don't use your hand to discipline your child. Don't use your fist to discipline a child. Don't use your foot or a headbutt. I'm just trying to cover all my bases here. I believe that a parent's hands should be reserved for an embrace, a stroke, and an affirmation. So when they look at those hands, they don't say, those are the things that hit me, but those are the hands that embraced me. There should be an extension, and that is in the term of some kind of implement that will get their attention. Well, that's corrective discipline. The other side of the coin is preventative discipline. You know, any good doctor will practice preventative medicine as well as corrective medicine. A good parent will do the same. Do you play with your child? That's preventative discipline. Do you pray with your child? That's preventative discipline. It's the time span. It's the hours that you sow into their life. Because the corrective discipline only reinforces the preventative discipline. If it's all corrective and not preventative, it won't work. As Josh McDowell is fond of saying... Rules without relationship will produce rebellion. A Gallup poll, a Gallup survey of 1,000 teenagers over a 24-hour period found that 42% of them received no words of praise during a 24-hour period tested. One half had gotten no hug or kiss, and 44% of these kids never heard the words, I love you, one time. That shows me that the preventative discipline has not been a part of that family picture. So back to the text. Parenting can be done negatively, could be done positively. Here's the third. Parenting should be done ultimately. There's a goal that you as a Christian parent ought to live with when you look at those kids. And here it is in verse 4. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition. What's the last three words? Of the Lord. It doesn't say, just bring them up in training and admonition, period. But of the Lord. That is, your goal isn't just to positively train them and if need be, admonish them and correct them. But to do so with the intention of seeing they become mature spiritually. It's a spiritual goal. Lead your children to Christ. Disciple your children in Christ. Teach them to love Christ. In fact, I believe the best definition of a parent, biblical definition of a parent, putting the principles together, is the parent is a partner with God in making disciples of their children. You are the instrument God wants to use to disciple those children and ready them for the future. And you've got to begin young. Charles Haddon Spurgeon used to say, Before a child reaches seven, teach him all the way to heaven. 
And better still, the work will thrive if he learns before he's five. Dr. Martin DeHaan, a medical doctor who became a pastor, came out with these statistics that after the age of 35, only one person in 50,000 will receive Christ. After the age of 45, only one person in 300,000 will receive Christ. And the reason he gave an ongoing set of statistics was to show that you begin really young when they're impressionable and they're forging choices for the future. They may step away for a while, but let them make that choice when they're young. What is perhaps the most common verse you hear when it comes to raising kids, whether parents come to dedicate their babies or you talk about child rearing or... What is the most common verse you hear? Train up a child. Proverbs 22. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. I think a lot of parents hear that and they think, what that means is drag him to church, make him sing hymns, say prayers at meal and before bedtime... And they might sow their wild oats, but when they're old and gray, they'll finally come back. Now, let me put a different spin on it. Here's what I think it means. Here's the role of the parent. That proverb, Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way that he should go. The word there in Hebrew, train, is a, it's a crazy word. It's the word hanak, which speaks of a practice when a baby was born and the baby was given to the midwife. The midwife would do something. She would take her index finger, dip it in some date mixture like date honey, and touch the gums, massage the gums, the soft palate, and the roof of the mouth of that infant to stimulate the sucking reflex to get that child ready for breastfeeding, feeding. That's where the word hanak, train, comes from, is to stimulate the taste. And so here's what I believe the verse means stimulate the taste for godliness in the life of your child. And you stimulate that taste by not only what you say in training, but by what you do in giving an example. One of our great presidents, President Abraham Lincoln, commenting on that verse of Scripture said, to train up a child in the way that he should go, for a man to do that, he must walk that way himself. So here's the deal. A hundred years from now, it won't matter if you drive a cool car today or not. A hundred years from now, it won't matter if you got the iPhone 5 or the newest computer or if you were a fashionista and you really looked cool in your clothing. But a hundred years from now, the world might be a better place because you invested in the life of a child or two or three, or a quiver full. That's the goal. Fathers and mothers, don't provoke your children to wrath. Don't do it negatively. Can be done positively. Train them. Admonish them. But always, ultimately, with that goal, in the Lord. Father, that's where we leave it. looking at a single text of Scripture with so much in it. Sometimes less is more. And in this case, 
It's comprehensive enough for us to get a good picture of parenting on a human level. But we also think, Father, what, a, what an example we have in you. We even call you Father, Heavenly Father. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us an example through your love and resources that you lavish upon us, through the care as well as the discipline, the chastening. So, Lord, I pray that we, as fathers and mothers, taking our cues from our heavenly dad, that you would train us to train our children. I pray for anyone who doesn't have a relationship with you and they're trying to do parenting on their own without your resource, without the filling of your Holy Spirit or the empowering of the Son of God in their lives. And I pray that they would come to the cross and through the forgiveness of their sins become a child of the living God, tapping into the resources that you daily give. Lord, we all need help. We all need strength. And we're counting on you to provide all that we need and ask you for. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.